good morning, everybody. Good morning, Restoration Church. Good morning. Hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas, a happy new year. Um, welcome back all together. Let's uh, be thankful to the Lord for bringing us here, uh, and uh, let's praise Him together for just uh, another year uh, to um, to praise uh, Jesus and, and to tell others uh, about the good news and the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. So, um, is it not coming through, Chad? No, that's right. I'll just talk loudly. Um, so today we're, we are getting back into our series in uh, the book of Acts. Uh, so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open that. Acts chapter 4, uh, as you heard that read just a moment ago. Uh, but before we jump into our specific passage for today, uh, I would like for us to just kind of recap where we are. It's been a couple of months since we've been in the book of Acts, so um, if, if you're like me, you know, those commercial breaks kind of mess you up and you forget what was actually happening. So I'd like to just quickly run through uh, the, the first three and a half uh, chapters here so that we understand more appropriately just the context of where we are in our passage today. So if you recall back in chapter one, uh, Jesus was, was there, was commanded uh, the apostles to stay in Jerusalem and to wait. Now, wait for what? They were supposed to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them in order to receive power so that they could go and carry God's message, the gospel, to all peoples and to all nations. And in the first few verses of Acts, Jesus is there and he's spending time with his disciples. Remember, this is after he has resurrected, but he has not yet ascended uh, into heaven. So he's there. He is spending time with his disciples and he gives them his parting words. He leaves them with their final mission. And he tells them what they are to do. He says, you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you then shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, Acts 1, 8 is very similar to what has become known as the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Now, Luke records this final mission given to the people of Jesus. They were going to Jerusalem. They were supposed to wait there for the Spirit to come upon them, and then they would go out into all of the earth and proclaim and teach the name and the gospel, the good news about Jesus and what he had done for his people. <clears throat> then Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit fills believers and they begin to fulfill then the great commission that they were given. And they do this by boldly proclaiming the gospel. And they do that initially in various languages due to the power of the Spirit that had been given to them. And here we see the beginnings of the early church. Literally thousands of people now gathering together to devote themselves, Acts 2.42, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And Luke tells us they were committed, not just to the Lord, but then also to one another. 
they were of one accord, of one heart, of, of one soul, so to speak. And they were so committed to one another that everyone had everything that they needed. They were taking care of one another. They were selling possessions in order to take care of each other's needs. All of God's people were gathering together with one mind, worshiping the Lord Jesus, communing, fellowshipping, eating together, and then proclaiming God's truth with one another. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Then in chapter 3, in chapter 3, we see the beginning of Peter's ministry. And as, as Peter and John are going together, Luke records for us that they were walking toward the temple in order to spend some time praying. And as they're on their way to, their, to the temple, they encounter a lame man who is also a beggar. So here you have someone who cannot walk. He is impoverished and he is asking for money. And though the beggar asks for money, Peter and John, I would say, give him something greater. They give him healing. They give him the ability to walk. And they tell him who gives him that ability to walk, and that is the Lord Jesus. They give him the ability to walk and a God to find hope in. Not only could this man walk, but he's leaping he is praising the Lord because of what God has done for him in not only healing his physical body, but redeeming his soul. And so he then joins Peter and John on their way to the temple in order to pray. And as they're walking to the temple, people take note. People realize and say, hey, wasn't, wasn't that the guy who couldn't walk? Isn't, isn't that the guy who, who just sits on the side of the road and begs people for money because he can't do anything else? He's running, he's leaping, he's jumping, he's praising God. He is no longer lame, he is no longer a beggar, but now he is praising the Lord on his way to the temple. And it caused these other people who are witnessing this to be filled with wonder and amazement. And Peter takes note of their wonder and amazement. He recognizes the awe and the wonder upon the people, and he says, you know what, this is a great opportunity. This is a great opportunity, not for us to say, hey, we did that for him. You know, let's give ourselves a pat on the back, look at us. No, he, he looks and he says, this is a great opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus to these people. He uses the attention that is drawn from this lame man being made well to give honor and glory to God. And of course, with any good sermon, Peter tells them again about Jesus and his death and his resurrection and the forgiveness that is found at the foot of the cross if you would repent and turn from your sin. Peter takes them back to Moses and Abraham and he, he points out that God's plan all along was Jesus, that Jesus would come, the Messiah the Christ, to die on a cross for our sins. However, as we've discussed and as we've seen and seen in our lives, there, of course, were some naysayers in the crowd. Some people who aren't quite so happy that this lame man can now walk. 
chapter 4 begins with the Sadducees, the elders, the scribes. They, they become so upset with Peter and John, and so they throw them in jail. They throw them in jail, not necessarily for what they've done, but for what they are preaching. They are claiming that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. And the Sadducees, they don't, they don't believe in this resurrection, and so it upsets them. And what happens next, I, I think, is slightly humorous, but it's also incredible at the same time. Peter and John are put on trial in front of the high priests and the elders. And the one question that is asked of Peter and John is this. By what power or in what name have you done this? So whose power and whose name do you have authority to do these things? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, uses this moment once again, not to back down from proclaiming that name, but he uses this moment again to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And he tells these men, it is by the name of Jesus that the lame beggar was healed. And it is by the name of Jesus that you may find salvation from your sin. So hearing Peter's response to their question and seeing Peter and John's confidence and boldness in the Holy Spirit, the high priests, Luke says, were left speechless. And then, all who lived in Jerusalem, all who lived in Jerusalem, they knew about this miracle that had taken place. They knew what the Holy Spirit had done and been doing through Peter and John and the other apostles. And so the, the chief priests, the, the high priests, they, they couldn't deny it. Right? This wasn't like they, they were there in one room when Peter and John healed this man and they could just kind of keep him quiet or, or say that he was a liar, that this thing never happened. No, this was a very public event. They cannot deny the power and the name of Jesus. So what do they do with Peter and John? Well, what happens next, it, it actually kind of reminds me of um, when, when parents are driving in a car. Okay, those of you with children, um, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about here. As you are driving in the car, or if you have a spouse who just, um, you know, when you have kids who are just in the back seat, that they're just being obnoxious, right? I know that doesn't happen to any of you um, where they're just being so loud and cranky, maybe fighting with one another. You're driving. There's no one else in the car to help you, right? And you just, if you don't stop, right, you better stop or else. Right? What, are, what are you going to do? You, you haven't even figured out the consequence that you are going to give to them yet. Right? You're just so aggravated. That's kind of how I feel like what's happening here with the elders and the high priests. Because they tell them, you better stop speaking to people about the name of Jesus. You better stop preaching this resurrection or else. And that's all they got. Or else. That, that is the only threat that they have. Because there's nothing they can do to them. They have broken no laws. That they can't do anything to them. So, so you better stop it, Peter and John, or else. Well, Peter and John respond and say, eh, we can't. We, we can't keep our mouth shut. We, we have witnessed 
the power and the glory and the fame of Jesus, we can't stop telling people about this. Being full of the Holy Spirit and, and eyewitnesses to the death and resurrection of Christ, Peter and John cannot stay silent. When people truly experience salvation in Christ and the Holy Spirit who is, who is dwelling within them fills them, they will overflow and they cannot help but tell everybody what has happened to them. Now, we get to our passage for today. So let's read together Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. And as we walk through this passage, what we are going to see is the church's proper response. What should the church's proper response be to all of these things that have happened? Whether they're good things, whether they're bad things, whatever takes place, what should the church do in response to this? So as we read our passage, that is going to be what we focus on. So let's pick up chapter 4, verse 23. <clears throat> Luke says, when they had released, had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So, Peter and John have been threatened by the council, and they go straight to their people. They leave from being imprisoned, they leave from being on trial, they leave from these empty threats, and they go immediately to the church. They go immediately to other believers, and they tell them all that has taken place, everything that has happened to them and through them. And then after hearing what happens, the disciples and all the people gather together, and they start high-fiving Peter and high-fiving John and say, you guys are awesome, great job. No, they don't do that. They don't congratulate Peter and John on doing such an amazing thing. They immediately instead lifted up their voices and began praying and praising God for what he had done and what he is continuing to do. This should be the first response of the church. Humble praise. Humble praise should be the first response response of the church see so often i think we forget that it is really god who is at work so often we forget that it is god who is at work many times we we will be complimented we will be congratulated for the things that god does through us But what is our response to that? 
What is our response to that? When, when you share an amazing story of what God has done, and maybe someone is saved through, through you preaching the gospel to them, what do you do in response to that? Do you turn around and tell your buddy and say, hey, you won't believe what I did? Or will you turn around and say, you won't believe what God has done? Will you accept credit and honor and glory, or will it be this humble praise and response that lifts the credit and the glory and the honor to God through immediate prayer and worship? Can I tell you where, where this is hard? Okay, and, and, I'm, and I say this not in a, a way for you to stop doing these things, okay? Um, but, but it is hard when you, and this doesn't happen here much for me, but when, when you preach and, and you get down and someone says, hey, that was a really good sermon, that, that's a challenge, right? What, what is the proper response of my heart? My heart wants to say, yeah, it was. Yeah, you should have taken a lot of notes. It was a great sermon. I did a wonderful job. None of you fell asleep, right? You all got saved again. It was amazing, right? That, that's where my heart wants to go. And again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't tell your pastor, hey, that was, that was great. The, the Holy Spirit was, was clearly active in that. Right? The, the praise and, and worship team. Hey, that, that was great. It was, it was definitely a way you were leading us to the cross in worship. Thank you for that. Right? That, that does. It, it, it selfishly feels good to hear those things. But in my heart, I have to remind myself, even if my response is thank you, in my heart I need to say, yes, Jesus, you were awesome. God, thank you, because you are the one who opens people's ears and minds and hearts to be able to hear what my sinful flesh is putting on paper. You see, it's, at the end of the day, it's not our name. It's not our name at stake. It's God's. And it's for his name's sake that he works through us, his people, to further his kingdom. Right? He is the main character. Not us. We, we are the uh, minor characters at best. right? We're, we're the random people, extras in the background, who aren't even named in the credits. This is his story. And our lives are designed to point to the main character, Jesus. That is the main point of chapters 3 and 4. It's all about the name of Jesus. Throughout Peter's sermon and throughout their, their conversation, ten times, it may not seem like a whole lot at first glance, but ten times throughout these two chapters, in the name or by the name of Jesus is recorded. Peter is making clear, this isn't Peter's name. <laughs> this, this isn't Peter's power. This isn't Peter's honor or glory. No, this is Jesus it is by the name of Jesus that this man was healed. It is by the name of Jesus that you are saved. It is for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And so before God's people do anything else, before God's people do anything else, they hear everything that's happened for Peter and John and through Peter and John's ministry, and they say, praise be to God. Praise be to God. Before they ask anything of God, they remind themselves of who this God is. This is the creator of heaven and earth, verse 24. He is the God who speaks to and through his people. He is 
intimately involved in our lives, verse 25. He is the God who is sovereign, who is in control of literally everything in order to serve his purpose and to do his will, verse 27. This is the God they serve. This is the God that we serve. And so likewise, we ought to remind ourselves of who this God is and what he has done for us. See, again, I, I, I say this to my students all the time. I think so often we forget that God was and is before he ever acted. Before he created, he existed. So before he did anything, he was worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship because of who he is. And in his grace and love and mercy for us, he created us. And not only did he create us, but when we turned our back on him, he redeemed us. He saved us. He brought us back to him for those who would repent and believe in Jesus. But what about the bad things? What about the threats that Peter and John received? What happens when we face danger? What should we do then? So the church begins by praising God. Now they turn to their second response, which is humble submission and petition. Humble submission and petition. Let's keep reading verse 29. Verse 29 says, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When the church heard of the threats and the opposition that Peter and John faced, they didn't run away. Right? They, they don't flee. They don't take off running down the street and say, we got to get out of here. They don't ask God to wipe out their enemies. They don't pray and ask God for more safety and to, Lord, please put this hedge of protection around us. They don't do any of that. No, the church responds by first praising God. And they don't pray for relief from oppression. They don't say, oh God, would you, would you please rain down this smoldering judgment and wrath upon our oppressors? No, they say, God, give us the ability to speak your word with confidence. God, give us the ability to boldly go into this oppression, to boldly go out in the face of those who want to kill us and proclaim your word in the midst of oppression they ask god god don't protect us don't don't just keep us to ourselves but no send us back out into those people and god do a mighty work in the name of jesus in their lives So many stories we can look at and turn to throughout all of church history as far as martyrs and people who, who didn't count their lives as something greater than, than the mission God had sent them to. 
And we see amazing things that have happened, not because of them, but because of what God did through them and through the submission and the sacrifice of their life. Trip Lee, uh, a Christian rapper, um, I love Christian rap, you're welcome, uh, but he has, he has a line in, in one of his songs, 116, rooted in, in, in uh, Romans 116, and he says this as he's talking about, you know, not being ashamed of the gospel and, and, and proclaiming the truth, he says, what are, what are they going to do? And I'll, I'll speak it in, in my vernacular just because I'm no good at rapping, but what are they going to do? What, murder us? What murder does is send a surge of us to go put churches up. So I think, I think oftentimes we, we allow ourselves in the, the fear of man and the desire to protect our own lives and maybe even the lives of others. We shrink back. And when we shrink back, we, we pull the gospel back with us. And we say, you know, my life is actually more precious than these people receiving the gospel of Jesus. Your lives are more precious, so let's, let's just let's keep you away from any sort of danger. Let's, let's pull you out. It's got a little crazy over there. And, and listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that there's not prudence and practical wisdom that is involved in all of this stuff. I, I know that there is. But I know during my time in youth ministry, one of the, one of the most complicated and, and, and one of the most um, really saddening things was when parents wouldn't let their children go on a mission trip because the first question they ask is, is it safe? And look, I, I get it. As a father, I understand that. I want my child to be safe, right? I want them to come home to me. I also want that they serve and love Jesus more than their own lives. That they would seek his glory and his kingdom. That they would serve him. You know, I'm not saying that's easy. <laughs> I'm sure it's incredibly difficult. But I don't want to be the one standing in the way of, of the kingdom moving forward. I don't want to be the one standing in the way of, of anybody going to be bold and proclaim the message of Jesus, even in the face of danger, even in the face of oppression. One commentator, he puts it this way, he says, their concern, the church's concern, was for God's word to go forth and for Christ's name to be glorified, leaving to God himself their own circumstances. God, I don't know what's going to happen. It might be death, it might not be. God, I don't know. I don't know what is going to happen. That is left to you. You are sovereign. You are in control. My days are numbered according to your word. So I don't know when that end will come. But I know that with the ones that I have, I am going to leverage it for your kingdom and take your gospel message to wherever you send me, no matter what may happen. Luke gives us this prayer so that it may serve as a pattern to be followed for our own praying. God's people in the midst of oppression are called to remain boldly faithful and to preach and proclaim the word of God and to seek his glory 
above their own interests and their own safety. So what happened next? What happens next when God hears their faithful prayers? Let's read verse 31. It says, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Luke tells us that in 431, that after they prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. God fills them as they gather, and then they speak. They proclaim the word of God with boldness. So he fills them, and he sends them. Now, to be clear, this is not some sort of second Pentecost. Okay, they, they had already received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had already been sent. They, they'd already received him in Acts chapter 2. Remember, the, the Spirit, just proof of that, the Spirit was working through John and Peter just before this. This was more of kind of a, like a renewed awareness of the Spirit's power and the Spirit's presence in their life. Like, like a fresh endowment of power, if you will. Right? This is like when you, when you feel and, and are just extremely confident that the Spirit is ever-present in what you are doing because you are doing it for the glory of Christ. Right? Paul uses some similar language in uh, Ephesians 5.18 where he says that, that we need to be filled with the Spirit daily. Right? Each day we need to be filled with the Spirit. So constantly we need to be reminded and, and kind of have this fresh perspective of the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And I think we could all benefit, myself included, from daily, every minute, reminding myself that the fullness of God dwells in us. So when you are full of the Spirit, what will happen? Verse 32, the congregation of those who had believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. They, this kind of addendum here seems like, hey, this is proof, right? This isn't just Luke saying, hey, this was nice, and they looked like no one had need. No, this was a literal thing that happened. Joseph, also called Barnabas, went and sold his land and brought the proceeds to the church so that they could distribute it so that the believers did not have a single need. You see, when the Spirit fills us, we will speak the Word of God with boldness, and we will be bound together as a people of God, described as having one heart and one soul. When you truly experience this filling, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and as you surrender each day, you will begin to see life as a gift. Gratitude will become a descriptor of you. 
Luke repeats kind of his main thesis here of chapter 2. The church, the believers were functioning in such a way that, that they were without need among them. They cared for one another well. And not only did they care for one another inwardly, but they realized that this wasn't just something for us in here. They went outside of themselves and proclaimed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Living in this type of community grinds against what we all think about in the way that we live our 21st century American life. But when we are filled and living according to the Spirit, living according to the way, the Jesus way, we will love well. We will see it as a joy to give generously to one another. Radical generosity will become a characteristic that others will use to describe us. Unity will take place, and it will spread through God's people as you commit yourself to God and covenant together with other members of the local community for the sake of His name. This is what it looks like to live according to the way of Christ. To live as one another through the Spirit. Understanding what Jesus has done on our behalf on the cross by redeeming us back into a right relationship with the Father. Now, as believers filled with the Holy Spirit, we are sent out into the world to boldly proclaim that Jesus has resurrected. Jesus is the Lord Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Christ, Messiah, the one whom we all need. So if you say that you believe that, then you are sent now into the places that you live, you work, you play, tell others about that risen Lord and Messiah. The question is, are you relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to boldly proclaim that message that he has given to you? In the face of whatever it is that you think you face, the threat of danger, the threat of oppression, the threat of being canceled, the threat of losing a job, the threat of being called whatever, are you willing to boldly preach Proclaim the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, no matter what may come. If you haven't believed that, you can do that now, simply by placing all of your trust and submit to what he has done for you. Trust that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you. Let's pray.